what I try to do in my teaching, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, is this. You know, the idea is that there's the, there's the content. There's the trying to understand what is written here, which is very important. And, yeah, I mean, it's a, I think it's an honor to study this book. There's nothing that's unbelievable. But what I try to do is to try to show how we arrive at our conclusions, a, a mode of reading. And that is actually equally important because it's very interesting to see how the text actually expresses itself. When I say the text, there are different texts. Every, every book has its own soul. And you try to, it's like every, every book's like a person, you know? You try to understand the, the person. You try to understand what motivates them, try, what, what the deep underlying issues that they have, what they're about, what's special about them. And that's when you learn Torah, every book, every book has a neshama, actually. Not always easy to figure it out, but each book is different. I want to say one thing about reading, which is related to the Megillah. The Megillah, there's a dispute, actually, in the, both in the Gemara and the Medrash. Same dispute. Rav and Shmuel, Barach One says, Melech Tipeshaya. One says he's a fool. And the other one says, Melech Rasha. He's a wicked person. These are the two opinions. I say the general drift, if we have a general drift within that tradition, is the more towards the latter, that he's a wicked person. He may also be a tipesh, but he's a wicked person. So I was thinking that this question as to what, who Achashverosh is, a tipesh or a rasha, is actually very much related to the way you read the Megillah. And there's something about the Megillah that is different than any other book we have. I mean, there's several things that are different, but one in particular a unique feature of the Megillah. There's been enormous interest in the last 50 or so years. I myself, close to 50 years ago, raised exactly this question about purposeful ambiguity. You read a text, and sometimes you can't figure out how to interpret it, not because of our inability to interpret, but sometimes because the text doesn't lend itself to a particular interpretation. The text is ambiguous. I started with that many years ago myself. Unbeknownst to me, at the very same time, other people, in particular this guy named Mayor Sternberg, was working on a book about how the biblical narratives work. Important book. He talked about the same thing, called it Gapping. Talked about Gapping. The truth is that personally, over the years, I've retreated a lot from, I still believe it's true in certain occasions, but I think each case is different. You can't throw them all together. Each case has to be studied separately. But there's one place, one book, I think, and only one, where from beginning to end, it is truly ambiguous about how to understand the book. And that's the Megillah. Because the Megillah can be read. I and mean, let's forget anything we know. If you're walking in the street, you found this Megillah, right? It reads like a fairy tale, basically. God is never mentioned explicitly, that's for sure. And it sounds like a court drama with a wise queen, a clever queen, the last second saves the people and all that. And... It revolves around the fact that one night the king can't sleep and happens to see in the record books that Mordechai the Jew had saved his life, wasn't rewarded. At the very moment that Haman's walking into his chambers, who knows what time in the morning, to tell the king to have Mordechai executed prior to his meal, his lunch meal, you know? So the question is, when you read that, you say to yourself, what's this about? Is it, an, is it a, a kind of coincidence? Possible. Instead of co- it's random. Things happen randomly. That's what I call Melch Tipesh. Don't look for don't look for motives. Don't look for things just happen. They happen randomly. 
Where is God in all this? Very good question. But certainly one can read the book that way. It's so impossible to read it that way. The alternative reading is that no, things just don't happen. Everything makes sense on some level. And Achashverosh is not a fool. Everything can be explained logically in the Megillah from beginning to end. It's a book that lends itself to two readings, and they're equally plausible. Now, I'll give you one example of this, and there's so much more to say, but I'll just take three minutes to give you a simple example. In the Megillah, so there's a decree written against the Jews that all Jews are to be killed on the 13th day of Adar. That's tomorrow, actually, 13th day of Adar. All the Jews, men, women, children, that's it. In the interim, which is the 12th month, in the interim, Esther has interceded. She has convinced the king that Haman is the real enemy. The Jews are his friends. Haman's the real enemy. The king executes Haman. Then Esther goes back to the king at that point, after Haman's been killed, executed. And she says to the king, to retract the letters. Esther doesn't want a war, by the way. She says, call off the war. Very important point. Call off the war. The king says, I can't do it. Why can't I do it? Well, the first, whatever signed with the king's seal can't be retracted. What you can do, he says, if you wish, is to write a second letter which contradicts the first. So you say to yourself, if it's a Melch Tipeish, I understand it. Because what is the difference in effect between canceling, calling back the first decree? You can't, that you can't do, because it's sealed with the king. But you can issue a second decree which contradicts the first decree. Okay. But if he's a, not a Tipeish, He's a Russia, means he's a clever character. So what is that about? How can you understand it? You can't, you can't bring it back. Issue a second contradictory letter. But of course, when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Because let's say, let's say you're Rachashverosh. You are convinced, rightly or wrongly, that Haman was after your crown. And by the way, he could even be right that Haman was after his crown. But that's a separate conversation. Could be so. It's possible. And Haman has hired soldiers, who knows how many. We know he had 75,000 die. There's 100,000 soldiers, many of them in your capital city. Your guy who wanted your crown. Let me ask you a question. Do you want these soldiers milling about your city? I don't think so. You want to get rid of them. On the other hand, you're a good Persian. You believe you're a a peacenik. You don't want to hurt the other Persians. How to get rid of 100,000 soldiers without you being responsible? Oh, it's simple how. Let the marginalized people do your dirty work for you. Then you can blame them. That's exactly the point. Well, we can't call it off. But you know, the Jews can fight. And I support the Jews 100%. Right? I support the Jews 100%. So that's exactly what happens. There is a war. After one day, the king says to Esther, how many have the Jews killed? How many did the Jews kill? And the king says, you know what I'm going to let you do? Fight in Shushan the second day. Because Shushan is his city. The rest of the provinces but his city. So therefore, he has used the Jews to eliminate his enemy. The same way Pharaoh uses Joseph to enslave the Egyptian people. Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to do, you should do. You know? Which is the way the king operates throughout the Megillah. So what is he? Is he a fool? Or is he a very clever person? And totally immoral, but a clever person. And the fact of the matter is, through every step in the Megillah, you can plausibly read it both ways. So what hangs over the Megillah, I would say, when you read the Megillah, okay, any other book, is a sense of uncertainty. We don't actually know 
what the motivation is. And the idea of uncertainty is something which is central to the Megillah. What Mordechai says to Esther at the end of the great chapter 4, when he says, tells her to go to the king, he says, go to the king and beg the king, he says, he says maybe, he says, Umiodea, who knows, he says, maybe this is why you became the queen. Miodea. I said before, the deep, Rav Nachman said it, the deepest level of to know is to know you don't know, actually. I, maybe the essence of life, really, that we don't actually, what do we actually know? We have the tree of knowledge. And the deepest knowledge, says Rav Nachman, is we understand that we don't really know. So the un- idea of uncertainty, anything is possible, you know what I mean? I mean, right now we're experiencing this, all of us. You have this virus. What do we know about this? What's going to be? Who knows? No one knows. I never, I never see anything like this in my life. We don't know. There are forces way beyond us, and we do the best we can with what we try to know. That's what we hear, try to know. But we also understand much will always remain unknown.